Hello everyone and welcome to ADV Motive Live number 11. Today we're going to talk about some really hot products and a really cool story about some people making a difference in the ADV world. Without a doubt, one of the most successful motorcycle brands in the U.S. recently has been KTM. Once focused almost entirely on race-oriented bikes, KTM has kind of taken the global market by storm, posting nine straight years of positive sales growth. The secret to this? Offering affordable, lightweight, increasingly more reliable bikes with a touch of racing still at the heart of everything that they do. In the U.S., we saw an ADV aftermarket explosion, and one of the most fanatical about performance upgrades who has shared in this growth is Rottweiler Performance. What does it take to bring KTM's already capable bikes to the next level? Find out tonight on ADV Moto Live. All right, our guests from tonight hail from sunny Costa Mesa, California, where they super team as a couple, Rottweiler Performance, one of the hottest companies selling aftermarket upgrades for KTMs. Everyone, if you could please welcome Chris and Mariel Parker. How are you guys doing? Doing great, Carl. How are you? Good to see you, buddy. Very good. It's been a long time. The last time we had a chance to hang out was in the SEMA show in Las Vegas. Sorry, what'd you say? Which was awesome. That was a great, great time. Yeah, the SEMA show is a fantastic party of an expo. If someone hasn't been, it's worth going. If you have the opportunity to go, how are things there in California? What's going on? They're good. We're busy. Things are cranking along, man. We're lots of things happening here. And I mean, of course we've got, uh, you know, the whole world is on its ear right now with this whole thing and everyone's doing the best they can coping with that, but so far so good. Well, right on. So for those in the audience that don't know you, could you guys maybe try to help us know who you are and what you guys do at Rottweiler? Well, my name is Chris Parker. This is my beautiful wife, Mariel Parker. I met her down in Mexico and decided to keep her, which is a whole story unto itself. But basically I'm from Newport Beach, which is literally just right across the street from our shop. And we are the owners of Rottweiler Performance. All right, that's awesome. And Mariel, what do you do over there? Well, a little bit of everything. Basically just administration, overseeing the shipping department, receiving customer service. General voice of reason. <laughs> General voice of reason, yeah. That's a nice thing. There's a lot of companies in the motorcycle world that are kind of literally mom and pop. And that doesn't mean that's a small operation, but it just means that at the heart of it, there's two people that have just kind of agreed to come together and make this craziness happen. And it's really not an easy goal to achieve. And some people even balk at it. So it takes mad courage and balls to do what guys are doing. So what were you guys doing before you started Rottweiler? And how did you guys meet? Well, before Rottweiler, I was CPR Fabrications, which standed for Chris Parker Racing Fabrications. And what I did for a living is design and take and exhaust systems for exotic cars, race cars, trophy trucks, prototype cars, that sort of thing. One of my current claims to fame and, and one thing that we still make here in-house is I designed the exhaust for Singer Porsches, if you ever heard of that company. Basically, if you have a late 80s, early 90s Porsche and you got half a million dollars burning a hole in your pocket, you can hand it to them and they'll give it back to you about a year later and <laughs> in slightly different conditions. So basically did intake and exhaust systems, what I specialized in before that. And I was the one man show. People came in and I mostly did racing fabrication, never advertised anybody. I was just a guy that people knew about that could bring designs to, and I could help bring them to life, you know, with the technology and at my fingertips and the fabrication skills that I had. And that's what we did. To answer your question, how I met her, I ran an off-road team for a while. It was a class 10 and a class one team. And I was a co-driver and a mechanic. And I fell in love with Baja, fell in love with Mexico racing down there. And when I left that team and started my own business, I 
wanted to follow, wanted to keep racing. I missed racing. I loved Baja and obviously couldn't afford a car. But what I could afford was a motorcycle. And so I started an off-road racing team and started racing down there. And I met Meryl pre-running for the Baja 1000 going through San Felipe. So she was down there with a friend of hers and they were on a little bit of a vacation. And I saw her, she saw me. And as they say, the rest is history. It took about two and a half years to get her in the country. The console is kind of like a giant DMV for human beings. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, that was a crazy story unto itself. But we finally got her in the country in about 2011. She came and helped me at the shop. And when she first came in, legally she couldn't work. You have to get all these different things to be able to do that. And she came in the shop. And when she first came in, she's like, what am I going to do here? I got, got nothing to do. And and I said, well, you know, maybe you could start doing this or start doing that. And and it's funny, flip to now, which is roughly a little bit over a decade later, when 10 employees later and, you know, all the growth that we've had, it's, it's a lot's changed since then. It's been a hell of a ride. Right on. So very quickly, though, I wanted to drop a mention here. We had talked about this briefly, and that is your father. He was also involved in some speed stuff. Is that something that you can talk that, about? That guy right there, you probably can't tell by looking at him, did about two and a half times the speed of sound at F-104. He was an Air Force pilot. Right. Flew in uh, Vietnam and a couple other things. And back then, the F-104 was probably like the F-22 is today. And if you flew those, you were a stud. He's still around. He actually lives directly next door to us. And Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he's still kicking ass. He came in here today. So we, we put him to work sometimes. <laughs> That's cool. So you have some speed in your blood, right? Uh, yeah. So I never had the eyesight to be able to fly uh, jet airplanes or join the Air Force, but nor did I have the discipline to be in the military. But I think it definitely runs in my blood for sure. I just do it on the ground. Awesome. Okay. So fundamentally, when did you start riding and what was your first bike? Oh, God. It's the first bike that I owned actually wasn't a bike at all. It was a ATC 200X. It was a 1983 200X that my dad bought when I was about 10 years old, full clutch, and some guy raced the thing. It was all ported and had a clutch and a twist throttle and to a 10-year-old kid, that's kind of a new thing. But we started going, my family had some friends that went to Pismo Beach together and they'd have a big wagon wheel of cars uh, out on the beach. And my dad was curious about that. So we went out there and we just kind of fell in love with it and did it for a family, as a family for a long time. And we had some relatives that had a cabin out in Boardmanville and Glamis. Have you ever heard of Boardmanville? And we go there all the holidays and kind of grew up riding in the dunes and just kind of took a hold from there. As you're a kid, you're kind of jumping all over the place trying to figure out what you want to do. And I grew up in Newport Beach, so I was in the water twice a day in the summer. And as soon as I discovered motorcycles, I don't think I ever stepped one foot in the ocean <laughs> again. I don't know why, but motorcycles were the thing. So did you surf or anything? Yeah, yeah, I surfed for a while, but my memory, I just, one day I was just done. The motorcycles were so much more dynamic for me. I was kind of a builder as a kid. I was that kid that I had an older brother, so I always had the Legos that were all the hand-me-downs, so I never really had a, any kind of proper kid. I just had a big bucket full of them, and I would build these things that did a thing, that moved something. You know, I didn't like just building something that didn't do anything. I like building that actually yeah. had movement to them and actually accomplished something. And So I always had this kind of mechanical brain as a kid and there's not much you can do with that with surfing you just go out and you wait for a good way to come along and there's not all you can do with it. it wasn't dynamic enough for me so when i discovered motorcycles it was like oh you mean i can tweak this and change tire pressure and move this around and i could have a direct effect on what this thing is doing underneath me and that sort of thing and i just really took to it and never really looked back that's awesome so when you started up rottweiler you know i mean what did the really early days look like. So when you were first thinking about this company and the types of products and just the general form, shape, or vision of what you wanted to do, what were you thinking at the time? I wasn't, nothing at all. <laughs> it was a complete accident, honestly. It's, I mean, we're actually in our, we've got a state-of-the-art dyno room and it's got great acoustics. So we figured out what the heck we'll do the podcast or vlogcast or whatever this is from the, the dyno. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly quiet. You're looking through the windows behind me into the rest of the shop. As far as Rottweiler goes, it was a complete accident. and. 
running a fabrication shop, when I first met her crossing the border, I would basically go down to Mexicali every other weekend or sometimes every weekend. And the border was just murder, both going down and coming back. So I ended up buying a KTM 990 Super Duke. I never really had my eyes on KTMs. It was never a big thing. I actually raced Hondas in the desert, but I've never bled anything, one thing or another. If you're on two wheels, I love it. I think all brands are great. They're all bringing happiness and dopamine to a lot of people. So I'm not one brand or another, but I got this KTM and I just, I started, I promised myself I wouldn't mess with the thing, but you know how that goes. And I started, I bought the thing basically because getting across the border was a snap. You could just cross the border one way and come back the other way. So I would throw in a backpack full of clothes and go down and spend the weekend with her. And the border wasn't an issue. I had a blast doing it. So I started tinkering with the thing. And what my business was is I did, I designed intake systems and exhaust for exotic cars. So I started playing with this Super Duke and playing around and I kind of designed this. There was an intake on the market at the time and I didn't think it was very good the way it was designed. So I kind of designed my own, went to the dyno and the dyno guy was floored. He's like, I've never seen anything make this much horsepower. So at the time there was a guy that was building a set of headers for that was in my shop that had a voice that people listened to on ADV adventure forums. And I told him to keep it quiet and he didn't. And word got out that I was making these things. And so phone calls started coming in. Wow. I had this old Bridgeport mill with, it was kind of retrofitted with these NC controls. And so I started making these things on the side and I'd sell maybe one a week and we're like, woo, like, hey, <laughs> lunchtime or lunch money. And we thought it was kind of cool. And then at first it was lunch money. And then, then it was kind of like lunch and dinner and lunch, dinner and rent and then lunch, dinner, rent and employees. And <laughs> the thing just kept going. And whenever I decided to do anything, I decided to do it. I just jump in head first. And I want to do it the best I can. I don't like to kind of do things on the side and, and ah, that's cool and do that. I think the first time that I actually had a product that people appreciated and they liked, and there was a lot of talk about it. And there was a lot of threads started about it. And I tried a few products with Hondas, little things here and there, but the market wasn't big enough. Off-road racing and scores, there's nothing, there's no money there. You know, to make a million racing, you start with three. So it was the first time that I actually had a product that people appreciated and wanted and liked. And so we started chasing that with some other products. And, and then we just decided to start building up the website. And we saw this as something that was tangible, that was real, that had long-term realities to it, attached to it. If we did it right, if we only did it right. And there was a few people in the industry that were doing pretty good jobs, but I couldn't find anybody that was doing what we wanted to do. And so we started heading that direction. And literally we've been polishing this thing and building it and honing it and pouring money into it for over a decade now. We hardly pay ourselves anything. We put it all back in the business. We're trying to grow a brand. We're trying to grow a product. And whenever I create anything, it's not how much money can I make off this? There's a lot of items that I make that make a lot of people happy that really don't drive us very much income, but we want to make cool stuff for cool people. And it kind of worked out and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, right. If you go back to like 2011, 2008, and around those areas, even slightly earlier, I think, ADV Rider, was basically the watering hole for everybody, right? Like, you know, you know, like in the community. And I wonder how many businesses were actually spawned off of that community under the exact same thing. You know, it's like, here's someone that has a particular talent or a passion, right? And then someone says, oh yeah, just kind of check it out. I made it for my bike. Yeah. Yeah, right. But then just kind of like, dude, you should make that for other people too. And it's like, well, I don't know if anyone's interested, right? But if you do it right and then you follow through with it, Lo and behold, nine years later, I mean, look at all that stuff you've got behind you. I mean, that is impressive. So what's the growth been like? We have literally doubled every year, compounded on the year Dang. prior. So the growth was just exponential. It just kept going, kept going. And every year we were blown away 
by year to date comparison against the last year. And then the next year would come, oh, there's no way we're going to outdo this. The next year we doubled again and the next doubled again. And I mean, even this year, even through the COVID thing, the motorcycle industry, as a lot of people know, was one of the industries that benefited from the COVID. And we feel terrible for a lot of the people that lost their businesses or their lives for that matter. And it's been a really tough situation for a lot of people, but the motorcycle industry just boomed with this. So we kind of did it again this year. We literally were 85% up from last year and last year was huge. So apparently we're doing something right and we're going to keep doing it, whatever it is. We're not operating from any kind of business acumen whatsoever. We're just operating as passionate people. And I think that's kind of been, I'd like to think that's the recipe for our success is that we come across as genuine and we're not coming at this from some crazy business plan. We're coming at this because we're writers too, and we're passionate about what we do and we're grateful. Yeah. Like and stuff. Yeah. I think that's been the impression I've been getting over the past three to four months throughout the industry, which is largely because motorcycling in the United States is considered a recreational activity. The industry itself benefited from the fact that almost everything that was recreational has totally exploded in the last three months. I mean, you try to get a bicycle somewhere, anywhere, it was like ridiculous. Uh, hot camping tents and stuff. Actually, some of the outdoor stores were getting looted during the stuff a couple of months ago. They were getting the people and everything tournament. People's going to, oh man, I need a new backpack water. You go and get a backpack stuff full of things and roll out because the outdoor recreational stuff was just going through the roof. I mean, it was just crazy. And we have definitely seen some benefit from that sort of minus the looting side of things. But everyone we talked to aftermarket to dealers, I think dealers were saying that May was just a killer month. For them and it was kind of a surprise everyone i've talked to including ourselves may was a record month yeah but it's one of these things where it's like it's a double-edged sword it's not all good news because when you have a large explosion of let's say new bikes that go out of the showroom floor or bikes that are bought secondhand too right people as we're all stuck at home we want to start farkling these things up right and so you start looking around you know crash bars performance mods handlebars all these kinds of things and people can straight up sell out. So that sort of creates another problem, which I've also heard more than a few people have, which is they've actually moved through a lot of their inventory and it's hard to supply the inventory and getting things from overseas now is also much harder depending on what it is. Is that the experience you guys have also had? Absolutely. It's what's basically happened is normally you've got demand and you've got supply and you try to keep yourself covered, reverse this, your supply is just a little bit over your demand. But what happened was the demand started doing this and the supply started doing this. And mm. all of a sudden you've got this gap right here. Okay. That's a lot of companies are just, they're struggling with back orders because it's a totem pole effect. We have the stuff that we manufacture and we've been trying hard to pull, invest a lot of our capital into new equipment and machinery so we can pull things in house and have a lot more control over our inventory levels and how long it takes to actually make something and that sort of thing. But the distribution side of our business, which is huge, getting stuff from our vendors and then where they get parts from their vendors just kind of keeps going. We've been hearing stories about like, for instance, CNC companies like that make CNCs or large equipment. We were looking to purchase a, a large laser cutting machine this year. And we were told like, you gotta be careful because a lot of the electronics inside those machines all of a sudden evaporated. You couldn't get them anymore because they were quality stuff, but they were coming out of China and they buy these things and they assemble them here in the US and all of a sudden they, they're scrambling. And so now that when you're buying these machines, there's a lot of untested little bits and pieces in those machines. So you got to be careful. We're not really experiencing 
that sort of thing. It's just really just flows. Some of the international suppliers, us, where they get their materials and their metals, one of them happens to get their metal out of Italy. And you know what happened there. And so we've had a, a big backlog of parts and we're doing our best to keep our customers informed as to what's going on, but it's presented some new challenges for sure. Yeah. So I guess, Mariel, you would deal with a lot of stuff on your end, right? Are there any tips or advice that you would like to give anyone else? I mean, this is affecting a lot of people and it's not just crash bars and like performance parts. A lot of people we had, a Royal Enfield Yamaha on here. It's a lot of people. They're really, what I say, chomping at the bit. They want it and they want it now. And that's understandable because they're really eager. I mean, they're really excited. There's a lot to be excited about in the world of adventure because that's what it is. If you're thinking about going on adventure and you're not excited, you just start making some bigger plans kind of thing. So how do you deal with that, Mary? Well, you know what? We are having the major problems is with international shipments because every country has different regulations to face this COVID thing. And with customs. Customs, mm. couriers, and people that are able to work, high demand, and then a lot of their employees are not working or things like that. And then even if it makes it across outside of the U.S. into that other country, that country mm. has different regulations. and they are stuck in customs or not to release from their local post. And so each country is so different. Uh, we're constantly monitoring their websites for all the careers we use. And it's been tough because my motto is like, hey, I want all my customers to be happy. And I wish I could just fly out there and drop the parts myself and get it quickly to them. But unfortunately, it's not up to us. So we've just been asking them and telling them, please have patience. We are in this together. We want you to have the parts as soon as possible. It's hard. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. stuff gets through okay, but yeah. you've got the occasional thing where something just, it gets held. The particular company, they have different rules and regulations and something gets held. And understandably so, the customer gets upset and we do our best to mitigate that and explain to them what's going on and, and do our best through that. And I don't think, we're not the only business dealing with that. I think it, it's literally any business that's shipping, especially internationally. Within the, domestically, we're, it's fine. Everything is fine. But internationally, here and there, there's some issues. So we just ask people to be as patient as they can. And we do the best we can. We're with them all the way. So do you guys have any overseas distribution partnerships or something like that? Or someone in the UK or Australia or something will say, I want 20 of these, give me 10 of these, give me 15 of these or something and so that they're selling it internally domestically or do you 100% do everything from your shop? Well, a little bit of both. We sell everything from our shop and we ship internationally. There are some shops in different countries that have worked well with us that some in the uk some in australia and here and there but we're pretty picky on who we choose to represent our parts we want to make sure that they are a quality company they understand what they're selling and there's some that have done quite well with our stuff they know how to explain it they know it's fuel injection and mapping and that sort of thing can be confusing to a lot of people they're not used to it and you got to be able to kind of explain some things to them and that, that can be somewhat complicated they're not that complicated but for somebody who's comes from carburetors, they kind of are a little bit intimidated by it. And one thing we've already ex always excelled at is making things easy for people, setting up dyno jet power commanders and things like that, where they're prepackaged, ready to go. And they, all they have to do is really install it. They don't have to understand fuel injection. They don't have to do anything. And that's been a big part of our success. But yeah, we've got some here and there, but that's awesome. before this wasn't that big of a deal. So Okay. Awesome. It's just unusual times for everyone. And I think patience is the key until things 
kind of get to whatever the new normal is going to be, whatever whatever that is. It's a 100% guess from everybody right now. I call this um, rearrangement. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. We are right now in the throes. I mean, we have two small boys, so we're in the throes of deciding and everyone what, what's going to go on with school and everybody's life is turned around. And it's just wacky and it's stressful on many different levels for everybody. But things go on and I'm glad to hear things are going well. So let's talk about some of the bikes, right? So KTM has done a great job filling their model lineup in the past few years. I mean, like originally you had the 640s and stuff like that, and that was a midsize, then the 690s, and then they went to the real big, to the leader plus bikes and stuff like that. And you have experience with all these bikes. And if we could, I would just kind of like to go through these bikes, like the 1050, like 1190 size class, the 790 and the 390. And the 390, we had a short interview on that in the ADV Moto podcast with Nathan Slabaugh. Folks can go check that out if they are interested in hearing more about that. But could you tell us a little bit about what you found out about the 390 when you looked at it in terms of being able to improve some of the parts on it? Well, we have one, but we typically, every time a brand new model comes out, we're the first ones to get them in our area. And we'll go over them and try to see what, basically the way, I'm going to start it like this. The way we look at a motorcycle, improving a motorcycle, is basically we ask ourselves, what has the manufacturer done to make this motorcycle meet this price point? Okay, so I've been involved in some of this where that's us kind of scanning in the bikes so we can design things in CAD. Sure, sure. Which is a, a very cool way of doing things. But but we look at a model like, what exactly did they limit on this bike to meet a certain price point? There's always these internal battles between the performance guys and the accountants and legal and all these different guys. And they all get mixed together and then out comes a certain model. And so we ask ourselves, what were they forced to do to this bike to be able to get it in the country, first of all? What were they forced to kind of dumb down, for lack of a better term, to make the bike affordable? And then we try to look at any weak points, anything for us, obviously we're known for intake systems. There's always improvement there because the factories are relegated to keeping them extremely quiet. They're relegated to a lot of different things that customers aren't. The customers can, once they get the bike, they can do whatever they want. So we'll go through and try to find improvements in filtration where we can get to improve the filtering. And you know, one example would be like our, this has been a very popular item right here, which is our KTM 790 power plate. We have one coming for the 390. This is a prototype right here. So this is a replacement lid. So a lot of times these things have snorkels. They just let in open air, which contains a lot of dust. And the dust gets its way around the paper filters and can tank the valves in the motor. So we'll go through and try to figure out how we can get them to filter better. If we can get them to make more power at the same time, then we call that, that's obviously a, a double positive. We'll look at the mapping. What can we do with the mapping to get them to run smoother? What these factories are relegated to, to get them in the country basically also means that the bikes run like crap and they know it. And they know that companies like us are going to help with that. So we tend to look at those things first. We'll get them, you know, as you're showing here, this is our 790 on the dyno doing some pulls here. So we'll get them on the dyno and we'll get them broken in on the dyno first, which is the best way to break in a bike. We put Maxima break-in mineral oil in it. We'll take out the, the, the factory oil, the synthetic stuff, put in the Maxima break-in oil and we'll break in the bike on the dyno. Then we'll put Maxima synthetic back in and then we'll do some baseline runs and see where it is. And then we'll start seeing where we can make improvements with that. And then outside of that, we start fitting parts. So, you know, we'll grab parts from stock and try to see what crosses over. So we'll, we'll check part numbers, see what crosses over, see what fits. It might be that the 790 front Galfer rotor also fits 390 or something off a of Duke might fit or cross over. So we'll get a list of those parts and we'll make sure to go through our entire website and update all that so everyone knows what's already available. 
And then we'll start looking at protection stuff and little bits and pieces there. So we're kind of a unique company because not only do we design and manufacture our own parts, but we're also a large reseller of a lot of other aftermarket parts that other people make. So it puts us in a really great position to have some pretty intimate knowledge on these bikes, on what they're capable of, what will fit them, what we make, what aftermarket makes, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of typically what we go through. And then we'll do a build on the bike and then maybe do some media stuff at it and then turn around and, and sell it to some lucky guy or girl. Right on. That's cool. So, so for example, on the 390, you have, I guess it's like the airbox cover there. Yeah, that's uh, So on that one, you've replaced the snorkel with a foam layer, right? This is actually in front of the filter. So this would be actually a filtered element on the uh, inside. Yeah. And it still has the snorkel. So basically this is only a lid that would not breathe. This is also the same lid that's on the, gosh, it's the Vidpillin 401. And we started Mm. testing these things. It's the exact same one. So we already have a part for it. Good horsepower with this, actually. We saw about three horsepower on that bike, which is a lot for a small engine like that. Yeah, and for a simple swap. Yeah, Yeah, that's actually the cool thing about this is it actually is you can unbolt the pre-filter right here and you can clean them and you can swap them out for different densities depending on what you're doing. It's Mm -hmm. fully rebuildable. There's other ones similar to this, but you can't pack the filters on a trip. So if you're going on a long trip, you're not going to carry a bunch of pleated filters this size. Nobody's going to do that. But with these, you can actually just unbolt that part right there and carry four, five, six, ten spares if you want, depending on what you want to do. We recommend if you're following a big group of people to replace this once a day. But it's easy. Piece of cake. You pop this thing off, you pop these bolts off, and there's a little pressure plate back here, and you can put in a new piece of foam, and, and there you go. Well, that's fantastic. You commonly see with a lot of bikes, and you'd probably be the right person to ask this question to, but you commonly see with a lot of bikes, especially some of the older dual sports and the singles, although you've seen it with other inline force too, which is people will drill out or cut the snorkels off of like the airbox lids or they'll drill like they'll straight up take a hole saw and they'll put like one inch holes mm-hmm. in the air boxes but those air boxes and in cars too is the same those air boxes are actually designed to pulse at a certain resonance you know what i'm saying yeah, to, to some degree yeah i mean it's i mean plenum's important having plenum on either side of the filter is important you know velocity stack length that sort of thing as far as pulsing i mean that's yeah. i think that's more along the lines of exhaust theory sort of thing but so is that a good idea though to cut holes in air boxes? I mean, is that a good idea? Just in general. As long as it's on the backside of the filter and not the front side of it, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depending on where you put the holes, I guess would be the answer to that. But I mean, I remember back in the day when I was a kid, they had those little kind of miniature filter things where you would just hole saw a whole bunch of holes in your lid and you'd stick these little filtered things in all over the place. I that was a cool thing back then. And you're just trying to get them to flow a little bit better. Sometimes there's that it's kind of like we equate it to a runner. If you're a runner, how well are you going to perform? Breathing fully through your mouth and nose or trying to breathe through a straw? Right. In order to get these bikes in the country, in order to pass sound restrictions, they have to make them breathe through a straw to keep the sound levels down. They try to pull yeah. those away from the rider and, and that sort of thing. And it ends up restricting a lot of cubic feet per minute. The volume. volume and- yeah, of the air. So is that the only thing you have for the 390 or is there other stuff that you also stock for? No, too? we actually have, we've got some headlight braces. Now that bike doesn't kind of need them. They actually made some improvement on the headlight mounts. At a lot of the 790 headlights and the 1190, 1290, 1090, those headlight mounts break. So we've got braces and brackets for those. We just did one for the 390. They improved it. It kind of doesn't need them, but we know it was easy enough to design and we know there's people out there that probably feel better on a ride with, with some braces. So we have some headlight braces made already for those. Those just went up on the website yesterday. 
we are working on some rear master cylinder guards. So we had a new product that we started doing that actually guards the rear master cylinders. I wish I had one right here. This is actually, I have one for a, this is one for a 690 that we make out of stainless, but we have them for the 790 and 1190 and, and the Duke series, the 790 and 890 Duke. And then now we're doing one for the 390 because they have these little plastic spigots for the, that feed the master cylinder, uh, the brake fluid, and they can get kicked off by a boot really easy. And they don't guard them for some reason. So we were making some of those and we're actually doing some luggage strap pieces so people can strap luggage down to things that are purpose built and that sort of thing. So yeah, we're kind of all over it. Just cranking out little bits and pieces. We've got some stuff in the works and some stuff already done. All right. So your latest hot build though was the 790, right? Which you really ripped in the 790. I mean, the thing has gotten mad power potential and a lot of really true off-road potential, which you guys put to the test. So when you were breaking down the 790, and you're kind of scratching your head and you're like, what can I do to this thing? I mean, what are some things that really jumped out at you? As far as like fixing things? Yeah, or just improving things. Well, know? let's see. On that bike, obviously we did the air filter stuff there. We did that this power plate thing here, which people have really liked. We've sold a gazillion of these things and it basically keeps the airbox completely dust free. And we ran that in the Sonora rally every day. We just changed the pre-filter once a day. In some of that video you were showing of banging out that filter, yeah. we literally hanging yeah. out in the sun. Normally you would see a whole bunch of like glint coming out of that thing, you know, little pieces of silt and other things. And there was a gentleman that was in our pit that was there and he says, okay, I've heard about this thing. Let me see it. And so Daryl Van Neuenhaus from Cyclops was there because his son was racing the bike West who did a phenomenal job. And every day we'd get in there and just change it. And we checked the paper filter. We ran the paper filter, the same filter the entire time. And that product worked really, really, really well. Now, Outside of that, we have the full intake coming that everyone's been excited about. This thing is, it's a huge, large surface area foam filter. And this is our rally version. We are gonna come out with a, I believe we call it a pro version, which will be plastic, which will be less expensive than this one. But this is the first one we're coming out with that is, you can probably see it all right there. It's complete carbon fiber, drops about two pounds off the bike. Wow. We're really proud of this. This has been in the works for a number of months. I worked with some very talented engineers on this. We, it's basically this airbox right here is velocity stack, one big velocity stack right here into two velocity stacks. So it's directing the air in there in a really smooth way. It doesn't make the air transition or do any 90 degree angles, which drops horsepower. It's got a huge air filter element in there and it's Dang. fiber to boot so we're releasing this one first uh, we're still trying to work out a couple things on the filter here on the cage inside we have a cage but this one that we made right here is kind of hangs out a little bit we want to tighten this up and make it a little bit cleaner but anyhow we got these coming out and there's been a lot of customers blowing us up for these things so that is is or is not available it's yet. not available yet we have commissioned 250 of these to be made and so i believe about 50 or 100 of them should be done right around now and we just need to get them and then we got to work out some filter stuff and some cage. So a couple details, but they're coming. And then we've got a less expensive version that, that won't be carbon fiber coming after that. So this is more of an elite. We call this the rally version. And then we're going to have a pro that's a little bit more budget-minded for somebody who wants to run these. Now, the nice thing about these is obviously foam filters. You can get a whole bunch of extra ones and roll them up. And on that bike, you can keep two or three in each side pod. They don't weigh anything. So if you're going on a long trip, you can just swap these out each day. You can even actually turn this filter upside down because the majority of the dust is going to get, you know, Outside. well, right on top here. Oh, on top. You can actually oh. flip it upside down. It's ambidextrous, so you can turn it upside down, kind of get a clean filter, and then you can carry a lot of these things. We've seen ones, you know, with pleated filters. You can't squish pleated filters into a Ziploc bag and carry six of them. 
So that's one of the advantages of this one. And, and it's an oiled foam filter, which is generally the most trusted in an off-road situation. All right. So you did more than an airbox, right? So I guess this is some footage from the Sonora Rally. I guess that's Wes rolling in there. And I would say his last name, but I won't for the, for the risk of mangling it. <laughs> but, uh, Van Newenhouse. Van Nuen and that's actually the okay, version. That's... Somebody in their family shortened it at one point. So, <laughs> yeah, because it's like Huizen or something like that. It's not exactly it. so. You obviously did more than an airbox to this thing. So for your rally bike, I mean, what did you end up doing to it? Believe it or not, that bike actually here is just a highly prepped stock bike. Now it's got really good parts on it. So the first thing we did was conflict suspension. So that is the WP Pro component suspension. Through conflict racing, they're lengthened to 270 millimeters of travel, front and rear. So the rear takes a new custom-made shaft. So we needed the travel. 270 millimeters is roughly 11 inches. So we needed the travel for that bike. So we started there. We ran a Rebel X rally front end on that bike, which gives it kind of a different and, in my opinion, better look. I'm not a big fan of the kind of buggy front look of that bike. It kind of looks like an insect, which is a very Kiska-esque design. You either love them or hate them. They're very yeah. interesting. So we ran that rally front end suspension. We basically ran aftermarket wheels. We've got two wheels that we have made for us custom from W Racing. Ran a moose in the front every day. So now we had to change the moose. Not only did we have to run a moose, but we had to stuff the moose with another heavy duty tube. So the front wheels weighed in a metric ton on that thing. Uh, oh, wow. But that's what we had to do to get the bike to not have any issues. And the problem is a bike that size actually murders mooses. So we had to go through a moose tube or a moose insert every single day. So we went down there with five wheel sets, custom-made wheel sets, so we swapped every day. At the time, we had our power plate on there, which is not, we didn't run this one at the time. We ran our power plate. On the next race, we'll be running this system. Honestly, outside of that, the bike was fairly stock. We remapped it. We ran Power Commander on it with an auto-tune, so it was constantly being tuned. We ran an aero exhaust with a decat. No decats, don't hurt them, as one particular company tried to allude to, to get business, but... So we ran an aero exhaust, decat, muffler, R power plate, Dynojet products. Outside of that, it was just a well-prepped bike. And so what we really wanted to do, the goal was to go down there and try to prove what this bike can do in its stock trim. You know, we didn't put any aftermarket bearings in anything. We didn't get inside the motor. Now we did run a recluse clutch. For sure we put, not the auto clutch, but we ran a, a core EXP, which is just more plates because a lot of the stock clutches have been known to have uh, some pretty serious issues. We didn't want to have those. So we ran that clutch. We checked it twice, ran the same clutch the whole rally for 1,200 miles or whatever it was, or 1,000 miles. Never had an issue. Checked twice. All good. But outside of that, the bike is fairly factory. So we learned that the thing is really capable. And when we decided to race that bike, and that's the Parker 250, a bunch of shots from that race, we really wanted to kind of plant our flag in the ground and say what Rottweiler owns this bike. We know it better than anybody. And the way to prove that is to actually go out and campaign it in the toughest races we could find. And so we did it. And we had a good finish in Parker. We actually had 20 something minutes of downtime because we got two flats and one pretty serious crash. And I think we still finished top 10. Wes is a hell of a rider. Very proud of him. He's an absolute gem to work with. He's a consummate professional. Wouldn't want to race with anybody else. We love Wes to death. Very soft-spoken. Huge guy. He's probably six something, two forty. Softest spoken, nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Right he's got all the right words. Yeah, <laughs> and he's very mellow in the pits. He doesn't get stressed out. And he actually halfway through the Sonora race, he's like, "Hey man, if there's any damage on the bike after the race, just let me know. I'd like to help you pay for it." And I'm like, "No man, <laughs> what are you talking about?" I go, "You're good. You're risking your life to help us develop these parts and do what we do. 
you're good. So he was a gem, an absolute gem. And he did really well, didn't he? I think he was just, what, eight seconds off podium or something versus guys with 450? Nine seconds off the overall podium in the Sonora Rally. Ricky Brayback in first, Skylar House in second. So we were nine seconds. We went down there hoping, fingers crossed, we might get a top 10. And then West started finishing like fourth through sixth every day. Every day. And we're like blown away. And the final day, we were on pins and needles because we were literally flirting with third, a podium finish. And unfortunately, we missed it by nine seconds. You're the first position the media doesn't talk about. But luckily enough, they yeah. did. We actually made the cover of Cycle News, which was really cool. cool. And did some other things. So we were blown away by what Wes was doing on that bike, the way he was throwing it around. He actually came in the first day and his first comment, the first thing out of his mouth, he's like, I think that's the most fun I've ever had on a motorcycle. Really? Yeah. So he's a big bike convert. Oh, yeah. Huh? I mean, he's always been a big bike guy. He's raced with his dad at Cyclops. They raced a really warmed over SE 950. And he would solo 24-hour races on this thing. The guy's nuts. Still wow. I'm pretty sure there's a gorilla swinging around in their family tree somewhere because he's just this big dude who could just muscle one of those things around like it's nothing. And we're really proud of him. Yeah, that's awesome. So during these races and stuff, Mariel, do you enjoy them? Do you like to go down there? I absolutely love it. Actually, it brings my back memories when I met him and when he was racing, I used to go and chase for him and I was in charge of his pit crew per se. So I miss that so much and now being back to racing is just wonderful. I love it. Plus, I love hanging out with Wes. He's so much fun. She's the I best crew chief you could ever ask for. She built a name for herself down in Baja. I mean, she got to know all the Honda guys and Scott Dunleavy, who's in the Dust of Glory movie. He was the guy who was helping out Mouse McCoy. Oh, yeah. Of ours. Great guy. He owns a Honda shop up in up near Santa Barbara. And Scott got to know her and she would go to a pit stop somewhere for me in Baja. A famous one was Kilometer 77. And uh, that's where everyone would pop out. And she'd wait there and set up the ramp and make sandwiches. And the Honda guys would come in and they'd load up and they'd want to go. And Scott would not leave until I showed up. He didn't want to leave her alone. So she kind of developed a bit wow. of a reputation down there. And everyone <laughs> took care of her. And she was tough as nails and smart and knew where to be and was always where she needed to be. And it's fun to be back into it. I had to quit racing personally when Rottweiler really started kicking off because it was just too much for me to, way too much for me to handle. Now I'm kind of on the other side of it where I'm a team owner and we've got a great racer with Wes and it's fun to get back into it. Racing, it's a good time. Oh yeah. Yo, it sounds like we should have Wes on the show sometime. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Should be fun. Well, all right. So we've gone through 390, 790. Now we got some bigger stuff and to kind of shorten it up a little bit, We've heard some rumors about something that's really hot on the bigger bikes. Can you tease anything about I that? I can't tease much, but we've got something that's been in the works for roughly three years. It's gone through about 96 iterations, and we're closing in on it. And if KTM were smart, they'd probably give me a couple million dollars not to release it. I'll say that. Wow. <laughs> so it'll save folks some time, or is it more performance-oriented? You know, like more power? or is it All of the above, and it's going to be a revolution for that bike. It's been something I've been wanting to get right from the get-go and I wanted to get it absolutely perfect. And after about 96 iterations, I believe we have it. Numerous prints, numerous prototypes. I wish I'd released it two or three years ago, but I don't think it would be what it's going to be now. So I wish I could say what it was, but I can't yet, but it's gonna make probably 100,000 people happy. Well, that's awesome. Is it going to be, uh, you think, sometime this year, maybe next year? Don't know. Hard to say because things are all kinds of turned over. I think this year. We're actually making moves on it that we weren't able to make before. We finally found a vendor who could make it. Oh, awesome. And we're just waiting for the next phase in this, but it is moving forward. So I know Dan knows what it is, and he's been blowing me up something fierce. 
<laughs> so Dan gets the first one for sure. <laughs> awesome. That'll make him so happy. I'll make him so happy. Boys and their toys. Gotta come over and pick it up. Yeah. Yeah, that would be entirely awesome. Well, all right. So if you look back over the last 10 years, did you have any projects that were particularly difficult? Uh, that particular one, yeah. That one's oh, a challenge to design. Yeah, that sounds like that's got to be the king of yeah. <laughs> the king of development projects. That one was probably by far the most complicated we've done. I wish we could have like come out with a 790 intake a lot sooner, but we really, really wanted to get it right. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of planning. It takes design time. Testing. Testing, and we really wanted to get this one right. We got a lot of positive comments. We released some pictures of it. We got a lot of really positive comments about the next level type of thing. And what we're really trying to show people, I'm kind of segueing a little bit, but what we're trying to show people is that we're a business that is constantly striving to be better and better and better. We don't sit on our laurels. We're not complacent with what we've got. We're constantly trying to be the best we can absolutely be. And some of those challenges and some of those designs have, and some of the lengthy time that it's taken to come out with things is because of that. We had one particular guy who was literally emailing us every single day, paragraphs every day, like borderline angry with us that we weren't coming, <laughs> that we didn't have this 790 intake ready yet. And after a while, we had to ask him to stop. We're like, listen, dude, it's not funny anymore. You got to chill. It's coming. Now, as far as designs go, I mean, in the beginning, we had some challenges with some designs that in the very beginning, we were using a certain material. And this is in the very, very beginning. Like when we first started, we used a material that started failing a little bit. It was like this carbon fiber kind of board stuff that we were machining on this old NC mill that was... 30 years old knowing that I had programmed to do this. And, and so we had to scramble and then we got it into injection molding and we had a bunch of challenges there. We're on this crash course in brain surgery on injection molding. And we had to consult with a lot of experts there and, and it just goes on and on. But throughout the years, we've been able to make these great relationships with some vendors. We're able to take these projects to fruition much quicker now and much cleaner. And just look at this thing, this thing right here, this thing is acropovic quality. There's been very few people that have actually seen this, but this thing is absolutely beautiful and it's perfect. And we found some a vendor who delivered for us and it was awesome. They were timely, they were responsive and they did some great stuff for us. So we're trying to bridge some gaps in our business right now that we have on designing things. We're trying to get away from the old, you know, wood and clay and modeling stuff to 3D scanning. That was some of the images you were showing there of 3D scanning the motorcycle doing a lot of the design work actually in CAD in 3D space. We actually have a 3D printer here, a rather large scale 3D printer, so we can actually print prototypes and you literally design something, throw it in the oven and let that thing print and that thing just runs all night and you come in the next day and you've got a part that you can test. So we're slowly kind of filling in these puzzle pieces where we're able to get a bike in, devise a plan, devise a strategy execute that strategy and then start churning out these pieces. If anyone's been paying attention to us the last probably six months or a year, we've just been blowing out part after part after part, whether it's just a little master cylinder guard or an intake or a new version of an air filter or whatever, we're cranking. We're on a roll here and we're just constantly, constantly trying to reinvest and make things better. That's awesome. So what's the future direction for Rottweiler? You guys do, as far as I know, 100% KTM. We've got the Yamaha T7. Certainly there's a lot of BMW bikes out there that I'm sure could use some of your some of your love. I mean, do, do you plan to expand into any of those spaces? That comes up all the time. We get that question constantly. And we love all motorcycles, except for maybe save Harley. Sorry, Harley guys, not much interest for me on Harleys, but I love all motorcycles. That does come up quite a bit. Right now with KTM, we've got more than enough 
for us. And staying focused on one brand is really where a lot of our customer loyalty comes from, where they know that we're hyper-focused on their motorcycles and we're not kind of spread out and spread thin with all these other models. A lot of guys who know about us that own a BMW or a Tenere or Ducati or something like that have asked us like, you guys ever going to make anything for our bike? And we love hearing that. And one day, if we feel that we can do it right and only do it right and do it perfectly without sacrificing the quality of anything we do or the history of the quality of anything we do, then we may consider that. But for now, KTM is more than enough for us. We've made a great line of products based on their models and there's so much more that we can do and we're happy with it. And it keeps us hyper-focused on it. And our customers trust the fact that we know these bikes inside and out. And we get a lot of great marks on customer service. You know, some bad ones here and there where plants lined up and they just could never get a hold of us. They just kept calling when we were on the other line and when other everyone else was calling. But for the most part, we've got a great reputation for customer service and we want to keep it that way. Well, awesome, guys. It's really sweet. So to kind of wrap it up, because we're coming up on an hour here, last but not least, do you guys have any words of inspiration for adventure riders? That's a question we always love to ask towards the end of every show. Yeah, I mean, motorcycling to me, has created such a wonderful life for me and my family, my wife, we ride together. I would highly encourage anyone who, I know it's always a stretch to get into something new. It's a little scary to make that investment or try something new. But if you've ever thought about it, find somebody who rides adventure, find somebody who's kind enough to allow you to go with them or chase for them. Or like, let's say somebody's doing an adventure trip and they need a chase truck go chase for them. At least you get a little taste of it and you can get a little piece of what adventure life is like. And it's been a wonderful life for us. When I was a kid working at a grocery store, I got to know a lot of people, a lot of moms, and they learned that I raced motorcycles at the time I was racing motocross. And I'd never let my kid ride a motorcycle. I said, I would tell them it's a huge mistake, huge mistake, because it brings so much joy to people's lives. And and confidence too. and confidence i mean we even yeah just the confidence by itself is worth it to a certain extent and then the community yeah. is amazing but what it does to you personally like just interpersonally it's a real whopper and it is life-changing yeah well we're even trying to revive the ktm rally on our own in in mccall idaho we have a facebook page called 2020 rider rally dash mccall idaho and ktm had to pull out which we completely understand as a corporation they've got a lot of money outlay and a lot of planning and it could look really bad for them to, to still do an event they weren't sure what the situation would be at the time when they usually run these things in september but we started kind of revival of it if we feel that it's responsible to do at the time and i can't stress that enough but a lot of individuals still had hotel reservations or still had block time out from work to go out and be at this rally because it's a big family reunion for people i mean sure ktm's there and that's great we love it and they've got demo bikes and all these rides and all this stuff but most people there go there just to be around their extended family, which are the, is the, uh, the adventure community. And so we're trying to keep that alive. There's been a lot of sadness and depression with this. And the last thing that adventure guys need is one more piece of bad news. So anyone's yeah. interested in still going, if it's socially responsible to go, we're still doing it. And I think we have 50 or so people still signed up right now that are going. So awesome. Okay. And Mariel? Any words? I've been thinking on learning how to ride forever. And the 390 is a perfect. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I don't discriminate against people that want to ride scooters or anything. Two wheels is two wheels. And it's amazing. Once you get a motor on that thing, whether it's big wheels or small wheels, but you just start going down the road, whether it's just to run to the store or blow off some dust from cabin fever or something, what a change it can have to your day and your attitude. And then when you put on the helmet, 
It's almost like going into your own temple or a little, like your own universe. When you put on that helmet and you kind of get on there, you're free to think like what you want to think. Uh, or not think. <laughs> yeah, or not think. I've got a mean wall guitar going on in the helmet. But anyway, very, it was very cool, guys. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. I know you guys are always really slammed busy. There's 100 things that you could always be doing. I just want to say something to all our customers. Thank you so much for all your support. Thank you for your loyalty. Thank you for all your support and for calling, emailing, for everything. Without you, we wouldn't be here. So thank you. Yeah, awesome. Only appropriate. Thanks very much. All right. Well, thanks again to Chris and Muriel for taking the time to share their experiences with us tonight. Running a business in a niche industry is no easy feat. While it requires some know-how, more importantly, it requires a lot of passion and dedication, not only to making a product or service, but also to a community. So please join us in two weeks on July 30th, as we will talk with Brett Tax, a prolific trainer, traveler, and now YouTuber. And one thing else that we'd also like to mention very quickly is we have launched a merch store featuring shirts, decals, and a series of fun custom-designed motorcycle-themed COVID face masks. So check out the link below for more information. And as always, your support means a lot, not only to us, but it keeps the motorcycle world running. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel and visit AdventureMotorcycle.com for more ADV. Until next time, everyone, ride safe and have fun.